Hello, hello, my dear friend, and welcome to the first episode of 2024. I am Jaylan Boyce, your host, and you are on the She's Awesome podcast. Well, today I have a very special guest. My entire conversation with her made me think about something precious, and I want to share it with you before I kick off the interview because. I think if you listen to this interview from that angle as well as your angle, it might be, you know, a very strong experience. And I'm going to tell you something. This episode is not a simple one to listen to. This is the story of a woman who fought against all odds. I mean, she stood up against her culture, her parents, the stigmas, the cancer. In her words, she stood up against God to redefine her life and live it not the way it was meant to be, but the way she wanted to live it. She believed and said, I deserve better. And just those three words gave her the power to rewrite her own story from a very young age. My friend, Please welcome to your heart, Saj Zafar, the founder of Lead Hership Academy and Institute of Change. Saj Zafar is a psychologist, ex-prison governor, leadership coach, international speaker, author, and a certified cultural intelligent facilitator. Her mission is to help organizations and women to break that glass ceiling and to really bring women into really powerful roles. She recently featured in Metro under the title, I was stabbed in a racist attack aged 11. Now I fight for girls like me. So now you know, this is a real treat to kick off the year. Buckle up and let's welcome Saj. Welcome to the She Is Awesome podcast, the home for women business owners filled with extraordinary stories giggles and thoughtful conversations offering inspiring takeaways for your life and your business hi saj welcome to the she's awesome podcast Thank you. Thank you. It's an absolute privilege and an honor to be here with you, Jay. Oh, I am so excited to share your amazing story with our listeners. So without further ado, I'm going to really kickstart our conversation and interview. And I'm going to ask you, can you please tell a little bit about yourself and how you landed in the entrepreneurship world quickly to our listeners so that they can you know, have the flavor of who is Saj. Okay, I'll try to keep this accent, otherwise you and I will be talking for hours. So my story is a a typical story of a South Asian in the sense that my parents migrated here in the 70s, both illiterate, uneducated, from a very small village from the Himalayan mountains in Kashmir. And they landed in a, a South Yorkshire mining town, and we were the only Asian Muslim family there for miles around. My life was pretty uneventful, to say, for the first five years. 
years until the day my mom took me to school. And that's when I discovered that, uh, how different I was from all the other children. And sadly, I think children can be very cruel. And, you know, there was a breakdown in communication. I couldn't speak uh, a word of English and they clearly couldn't speak my language. And to the frustration of the teachers and children, I ended up severely being bullied. I authored a book not so long ago and I wrote a sentence which I think captures my experience of my childhood in the sense that I learned to fight before I learned to read or write. So detention and parents being called in regularly, falling behind with schoolwork, became the theme of my childhood right up until the age of 11 when sadly one evening on a dark November night I was stabbed by the bullies Uh, yeah yeah and and so you can imagine the extent of trauma and the experiences I was having and you know I I call it a very schizophrenic upbringing on one hand I have my dear parents trying to impose their cultural values on me that the the most that they expected from me was to to be married by the age of 15 16 to a first cousin Uh, no real expectations of education or wanting to work or any of the things that I in my head had a desire so I'd grown up with this notion that we have this one wonderful life and I was going to do something with it and I refused to be contained I refused to stay within the box and hence always always pushing the boundaries to the extent by the time I was 15 my mother kindly had drummed it into me that there were only two ways to leave and that was one through was uh, marriage or the other was death and I guess I wasn't interested in the marriage element so sadly it was around when I was 15 I took a heavy overdose and really wanted to end things and was blue lighted into hospital and within 24 hours I was in a psychiatric unit before a psychiatrist who I poured my little heart out to in the hope that she would understand and rescue me. Instead, she turned to my parents and said that I was having an identity crisis. My father's interpretation of that was a one-way ticket back to Kashmir, where I spent the next two years, four months and 15 days, not that I was counting. Before I was able to negotiate a return, came back with the agreement that if they allowed me to go to university, I would agree to my my first cousin. I had a different plan. So on the last day of university, with a little help from my course tutor, I took a flight out of the country and decided, uh, well, went on the run. And I was on the run, as I call it, for around six weeks before I contacted my dad and invited him to meet me because I realised that, you know, here I was as this 19-year-old just simply wanted to live my life on my terms, have the freedom of choice, have the freedom of decision-making, have the freedom of applying my education, have the freedom of, you know, just working and doing the things that normal 19-year-olds wanted to do. And, you know, although I'd left home and ran away, I still was shackled by this fear that if I got caught, then it would end up either being deported back to Pakistan 
or that they, you know, they might do some harm to me. And honour killings were a real thing back then. And I'm still sure they're still there in some pockets of society. And I think this was the most pivotal moment. And my father met me and it's the day, God rest his soul, is the day when he let me go with his blessing. And we were in this cafe and he asked me why I was trying to do what I was doing. And I tried to get him to understand, which was really difficult because as a father, all he could see was he had this young daughter who he wanted to marry off and, you know, live happily ever after. And here she was struggling with everything that he was suggesting. And I think within that short conversation, my father came to the realisation that even if he tried to take me back, I would escape again. And I call it escape, and I don't mean that lightly. And we were sitting in this cafe, and he said to me, is there a back door to this place? And I said, yes. And I ran out of that door, and I kept running till I came to Piccadilly, and, you know, came to London. I graduated in forensic psychology, and I knew that I would end up either in prisons or police. And I was very, very lucky that I landed my first ever role to set up a therapeutic unit for young sex offenders in Felton Prison. And, um, you know, and I think like most, you know, 20 year olds, I was just so relieved that I had a job, you know, and I felt so grown up, you know, I, I bought my own house and I was just so happy. And that was the extent of my ambition. But I came to the attention of the, the senior governor of the prison and he was just totally taken aback that this young Asian female was very comfortable in this prison environment. Yeah. Uh, and you know again I, I authored in my book and I said I've spent a lifetime trying to escape the life that I was born into only to find peace and solitude inside a prison you know that's the irony of my story anyway fast forward he suggested I do the leadership program which I did six months later I graduated the program and I became the first youngest Asian female to become a prison governor wow one minute you know you're a middle manager in an organization well in my case i was inside a prison and the next you're the chief exec of uh, an organization where nobody wants to be including the staff you know <laughs> So the prisoners are not happy, the staff are not happy. And then, you know, you, you turn up in my little suit and heels. And that's the day I realised, oh, my God, my challenge isn't about doing the job. My challenge is to get these people, which were white uniform staff, white men, ex-servicemen, to really you know, accept me, you know, and that took some doing. And then before you know it, you know, I spent the next 12 years enjoying and really, really striving and thriving in my career uh, as a prison governor. So I got married, had children, gave birth to two beautiful little boys and I realised I couldn't really have a, a baby on the breast, one on the hip and run a prison yeah. at the same time. Um, it just wasn't going to be feasible. And then I went into central government up until five years ago. Had a health scare, had a health scare, was blue lighted into hospital, was having a end of life conversation with a neurosurgeon. And that's when it hit me. That, and by the way, you know, I carry a lifetime of trauma, unresolved trauma with me. So when the neurosurgeon said it wasn't looking very good and I didn't have long to live, I refused to die. <laughs> I just 
literally refused to die. And up until that point, I did have a relationship with God. You know, I'm a woman of faith. But, you know, but that's the day I really turned to him and I thought, you can't do this to me. I refuse to accept that after all that I've been through in my life, now when it's my turn, you decide to pull the curtain down. No, I'm not. I refuse to have it. And Jay, you're not going to believe this. I had a one in a billion chance of survival. Perhaps God was on duty that day because miracles do happen. And after 12 months of treatment, the tumour ceased to exist. I went on to, to, you know, living the life that I knew. But something drastic had changed. And through that 12-month period when I spent totally out of it with, you know, consumed by drugs and and everything else, there was a realisation that if he, I'm talking to God now, if he was going to give me this chance, then I really needed to show up. Uh, Not only did I need to show up, it was the first time I started to think about what was my legacy and what was I going to leave behind. And outside of my two boys, I didn't really have much, you know. So I thought to myself that if I'm afforded this chance, I'm actually going to dedicate my life to doing the things that I can do best. When I really looked at it, I know a lot of, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about purpose, life purpose. But for me, it was a case of I wanted to make a difference. I've always wanted to make a difference to people's life. But for me, what was important was that my leadership journey was so unique that I was mindful that towards the end uh, of my career that I found myself in spaces where I was the only female at that level, but more importantly, the only woman of colour in those spaces. So I decided, you know what, I was a certified coach anyway and a trainer and a psychologist, so sort of blended all of that stuff together and set up my coaching business to help women, to help organisations increase the number of women into leadership. What a story. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, it's, it, I try to keep it succinct and I'm mindful of the time. But I think what that does, it gives you the context of who I am and how I ended up in this space. No, we, can, we can close it. That's it. I mean, like, whoever is listening, whoever heard that story, like, there are so many cliche things that we can we can, I don't want to say cliche no common sense things that that we can take out of it resilience writing your own story all that stuff so my job is a bit difficult because the story in itself it, yeah. it, you know it, it's the story right I, mean, I don't need to ask questions to inspire people but now I am I'm gonna try to find some intelligent questions anyhow right So the first thing that I want to explore is I want to go back to that early life moments up until you ran away and explore this. I mean, because I do believe that. So this is proven. It's in the studies. Like everyone, like boys, girls have that power to say no, right? Yes. So, you know, we are actually naughty children. But somehow, and when you look at the stats, boys are and I'm quote marking with my hands, no tear. Hmm. And there is an element of permission. Yes. So boys are allowed to be no tear. And this is not like allowing in terms of, oh, girls get more punishment. In certain society, they do, like in your originated society and in my originated society as well. But also 
even the positive reinforcement of girls versus boys makes it that girls are encouraged to suppress their naughtiness mm. and boys are almost encouraged to, you know, <laughs> be naughtier. Now, the, mm. the thing is, I don't know, maybe I am not informed enough, but I don't know anybody who follows the rules to the T and who changes mm world mm. i don't know anybody anyone who changed something in this world for the good or sometimes for the bad is the person who didn't follow the rules they are mm. the naughty ones right mm. so you were the naughty one i don't know called naughty i've been called many things uh, you know mostly offensive and not you know repeatable right here in this space but i think i never saw it as being naughty I just didn't belong. Throughout my life, I had this sense that, the, it, it, you know, it, and if I was, you know, because I'm a psychologist, I, I never had a sense of belonging. And I always felt that life, you know, on a spiritual level, I always felt that uh, my, my cause was much bigger than me. I always believed that. You're not going to believe this. I was young as six. My early fantasies about leaving home, having an education and being independent and having my own house. And this life that I was dreaming of, fantasizing, was so far removed from the one that I was being raised to be and to be involved in. And yet, I held on to that for dear life because it was my salvation. It was the hope that I hung on to. And I respect that. I know that you weren't being naughty. Naughty is kind of what the society gives us as name, right? But you broke the rules. And what I want to ask you is what is that seed as a psychologist and as a coach? What is that seed that makes someone dare to break the rules from the young age what is it that makes us want to break the rules in a good like as i said there are goods and there are beds to, to us to choose where we're gonna break the rules of course don't break the rules and don't drink and drive that's a you know that's a silly thing but the rules that actually puts us into the little small boxes What does that see, do you think? I don't think there's a single C. I think, you know, there's a lot of research on this. So there is a, a sense of self where you believe you fit into life, society, your family. There's also that sense of self of belonging or not belonging. And the other uh, the bit is those of us that feel confined And I use that word literally, when you feel confined, when you feel as though people are imposing on you. And many of us will, you know, conform. In the majority, you know, you're absolutely right. Many of us will conform. But then there is something about us that who refuse to conform because we believe. And this is the self-belief. For me, it was really about this belief that I'm entitled Right. You know, just because you gave birth to me and you feed me twice a day and you clothe me, it does not give you the entitlement to take away my freedom. 
And it was as simple as that. So the freedom of choice, the freedom of decision making, the freedom to live the life. And, you know, when I refer back to another conversation, my father couldn't comprehend. He felt like, you know, he was giving me food. He was giving me clothes. He was actually taking the decisions away. So he wasn't putting any pressure on me. He was actually choosing the partner that I was going to live with and, you know, and where I was going to live. And for me, it was... No, that is what you're dreaming, but it's not my dream. I love what you're saying. And I think this is a very key thing that we caught here, you caught it, is the belief that you deserve the entitlement. I believe that I deserve choice. I believe that I deserve freedom. That was your belief in entitlement and like your belief in I deserve more. And I think this is key, especially in your work line as well. And in my work line is I see this. Women do not believe that they deserve more. Mm. They don't believe that they're entitled to salaries like Mm. men do believe. They don't believe that they're entitled to grow their businesses like men believe. And, And that is actually... Like you're literally like opening windows in my head because it's been a while that I am looking into this idea of why we're not able to dream bigger. What are the things that are holding us back from dreaming bigger? And it's, it is that idea of I don't deserve it or I do deserve it or not even giving yourself the choice of deserving or not deserving and then confirming, which is great what you're saying. So this was the first question. I think that was a great question to end on to this idea of what do I deserve? What do I believe that I deserve? Mm. That's Mm. amazing. Thank you for that. Now, let's move to your entry to a world where (laughs) no one wants to exist and you thrived, Mm. right? Tell us a little bit more about like the key leadership learnings that you had in an environment where no one wanted to be. Yeah. Because this is key. Because this is culture. How did you create culture or how did you shift that culture where no one wanted to be? The first and foremost, can I just say that I made lots of mistakes? Please, right? of course. That's learning, right? I, I own my mistakes. And and, and, and I'm one of those uh, believers that it's through the mistakes that comes learning and growth. You never learn anything by doing things right. So here I was, a 27-year-old in charge of a prison, one of the worst high-risk prisons, not only in the UK, but Europe, okay? And where, like I said, including the staff and the prisoners that didn't wish to be there. My biggest challenge was that I entered that leadership as a woman, as a young woman. And within a very short space of time, somebody interviewed me once and they said, what are the challenges of being a prison governor? You know, that was a question that I was asked. And I said, young, Asian and female. <laughs> and they looked at me because I think they wanted me to sort of say, oh, the job itself and, the, you know, the skills or the lack of or leadership or lack of. It wasn't any of those things. My biggest barrier to my career was the fact that I was a female. When I was a young female in a predominantly all-white male environment. So I had to, and I know that a lot of your listeners will, will, this will resonate with them, I had to edit myself, okay? 
And I had to defeminize myself so that when I walked through the door, people didn't think, oh, she's a young, attractive female. I wonder what she's doing after work, perhaps drinks. What then, you know, because I wanted to be taken seriously. I was, you know, catapulted into a senior leadership position with the training, but the training didn't prepare me for what I was being met with. Does that make sense? So when I was in that environment, I had to edit myself. But then I saw, I realized that having been trained by men, right, actually the army, that's who trains the, the governors, that the men, you know, they, for me, it was like there was, there was a different approach, right, that was needed. Mm. So prisons are not full of dangerous people, believe it or not. That's the, that, Let's dispel the first myth there. People that end up in prison are sadly people that are social dropouts, excluded from schools, mental health issues, drug issues, single parenting, you know, lots and lots of reasons that you and I could, you know, we could have a whole a list. So what I realised was that when I was in those spaces, that when I particularly showed up as a woman, that I had empathy, I had sensitivity, I diffused situations rather than escalate them. I actually talked to prisoners. I didn't have any problem kneeling down on somebody who's just harmed themselves and they're just lying open with wounds. I didn't have any problem coming face to face and making a decision that they didn't like, okay? Mm -hmm. So for me was when I showed up as a woman, I so learned, actually, I've done this all wrong. I can't just come in here and try to be a white male leadership. I need to come in as sad, as sad as a woman, as a female, as a young you know, female with all my values. And it was my values, my northern compass, as I call it, that helped me to strive and thrive. Saj, this is gold again. Because first of all, anybody who listens to this, even I think men in certain contexts or, you know, male, female and cisgender, whoever, they will resonate because we all have been, and hopefully for us, in places that challenged us, right? That we were out of comfort zone. And you're so right. My instinct was to conform. Be like them. And I I come from a background where, you know, I was 30 years old and I was playing the big consultant who will come and, you know, resolve the strategy for these pharma companies, big 50 plus all white men people. And I would arrive and I remember this, like I would pass a considerable amount of time. And I've talked about this in this podcast before to choose the size of my heels Because I would be like, okay, I'm five foot two. I look like a child. I need to look a bit older, but I cannot look sexy. I cannot be too uncomfortable because I'm going to be on my feet all day long. So what the heck am I going to do? Right. I remember passing time on like choosing that fucking heel. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like, this is it. And you're so right. The minute I said, you know, after all this. They're not buying all my services for the heels. They're buying my brain, the way that I see things. And that's what makes me different. Yes. And that's how I actually found my power. 
Mm, absolutely and this is so right so it's you know like we all talk about oh be authentic be genuine what does that mean that means actually there are moments where you will feel crippled by the environment you are in because it's going to be maybe a little bit above your abilities but it's because it's going to challenge you in your knowledge whatever 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 because you're not going to look like them you're not going to feel like them you're not going to talk like them like I am not a native English speaker yeah I do make mistakes and that was also another thing that's fine own it get ready prepare yourself for your best game but make it your best game, not their best game. And that's so true. This is the learning too. I love it. I love it. Look, look at that. I'm, I'm literally like thriving in here. Thank you so much. It's no, I, And just to build on that, I think just for the purposes of your listeners, I think you actually become aware of your values, not from your day-to-day stuff, but you become aware of your real core values when they are breached. So when your values are breached, I believe something it ignites a fire inside of you. I call it, I, that's my red flag. When my values are breached, then there is no rhyme or reason. The red flag comes and I will come at you with everything that I've got and more. You know, and there are two examples I just want to quickly share. And sometimes you do things by the seat of your pants without thinking. And then there are other times when you do something because you know instinctively, and I call it my three brains. There is my first brain between the ears. And then, of course, there is my second brain, which is my heart. But the third brain that most women rely on but tend to forget to use is your instinct, okay, your gut. And I'm going to very, very quickly share with you, I think I was 20, 21 years old. I was called into court to do court duty. And, oh, my gosh, you know when you're 21-year-old and you you feel so grown up, you're talking about heels. I'd got this lovely little jacket, trouser suit, my little heels, and I was super excited. I was going, you know, my little notepad back then, you know, you didn't have iPads. And I walked into the court, and the court started with the judge, and the usher was a, a white, elderly, mature woman. And then immediately there was some whispering going on between the judge and the, and the court usher. And they were looking at me, right, as I was standing in the stand. And then the usher came over to me and she whispered and she said, the judge has said that you need to remove your nose pin, right? And I'm like, okay, right? And immediately, if you imagine, you know, you're this young female, you're doing your court duty. And, you know, I I remember my eyes were just filled with tears. I was so, you know, I felt embarrassed. Oh, my God. And then she said, he also says that you can't be in his court because you're wearing trousers, right? And that you should wear a, a, a skirt. And the year is, I think it, the year is 99, or I'm not talking about, you know, the 16th century. I'm talking about 99 or 98, 99. And, you know, Jay, I took leave of the court. I went to the bathroom. I removed my nose pin. I'm not sure why I did that. And I came back in and I said to the usher, I said, I've removed my nose pin, right? But I refuse to remove my trousers. And she looked very awkward and embarrassed. And and she said, but 
I said, there is no but. You can go back to him because my wearing trousers has got no bearing on the case, right? But out of respect and courtesy, because I was raised to respect my elders, right, I removed my nose pin if that was going to get in the way of his decision making. <laughs> and, and, you know, and fast forward 20 years later, I was stood in court and I heard this voice behind me and this woman came up to me and she hugged me and she said, you're sad. And I thought, oh, my God, who are you kind of thing moment. And she said, I remember you because you refused to take your trousers off. And consequently, every woman that came up behind you when she did court duty, we all wore our trousers and we did not wear skirts. Okay, so that was my first. My second, which is far more serious, I was on prison duty as a governor one evening and there was a blue light and there was an incident in the segregation unit. And our training tells us that when there is an incident, a governor must go and open up gold command so they can uh, see over the whole incident. Instinctively, don't ask me why to this day, I ended up, running towards where the incident was, which is a no-no for any governor. The staff must do that, but not the governor. I ended going into the segregation unit and I saw that the light was flashing and there was a door open. All of the other prisoners were locked up. And this was late in the evening. The whole prison was on lockdown. And as I rushed up to the second floor, and I saw an officer holding up a prisoner who had a noose round his neck. And the young man, the young prisoner, there was a white froth coming out of his face. The officer that was holding him by his legs as he was keeping him up to save him literally from dying, he said, I can't breathe and I can't hold him up much longer. In that state of panic, I ran downstairs and usually what we have, we have a board which is locked and it holds scissors and the various tools that we keep locked up because of security risk. I couldn't find the keys to that board. I then ran into the kitchen where I found a knife and I ran back upstairs, jumped on the bed, cut the noose and both the officer and the prisoner both fell to the floor. And by then, the nurse, the, uh, everybody, all the other staff had came. They managed to resuscitate him and save his life. I did not get applauded for my actions. I actually got suspended, right, for making such a decision, right? There was an investigation and in that investigation, I was asked to relay the events and why I made the decisions that I made, given my training. And I kept coming back to the same thing. And this is where your values come in. I said, instinctively, what I saw was that a young man was about to die on my watch. Okay. And number one rule for every governor in a prison is to preserve life. OK, and I said, my intention, my desire, my actions were all about preserving life in that moment. Right. So I didn't stop to think, oh, what is the contingency plan? And, you know, what am I supposed to? I acted on what I felt. What was it? And I said, if you ask me, would I change my mind? Would I do things differently? Which they do always ask. I said, I wouldn't because I have two scenarios. 
which are very, very simple. One, that I follow the contingency plans and the young man dies and I have a conversation with parents telling them that their son died on my watch or I am found in front of, you know, uh, of colleagues, being investigated, having to explain myself. But at the back of my mind, I know that I saved a life because of the behaviours and the decisions I made. So what I'm trying to hopefully get across is your values are the bits that are inside of you, that drive you, that ignite you, that keep that fire in your belly. And they're there all the time, but you know what they are when you know when the line's crossed. That's really true. And also I think that is also you break rules because of your values as well. I mean, when you were a little child and you broke the rules of your parents, the rules of the school, the rules, all of it, it was also probably a value that you didn't know rationally, but the value was freedom. The value was independence, your own independence. And then you broke the rules because of that. Now, of course, in a systematized society, we will be always questioned. But this is what I was saying at the start is be a rule breaker. Don't be afraid of being a rule breaker. And I'm not saying this lightly. And I'm not talking about, as I said, like breaking the traffic lights rule. (laughs) You know, it is like... Don't be afraid of breaking the rules if they are not serving the society, others, you. Just be a rule breaker. And I think this is even more important for women because, interestingly, in our society, most of the rules are made by men. And we're still living with laws from 1800s where women didn't have the right to vote, to work, to exist, to own, to even single parent, you know. So, And there are actually rules. I think there is a rule. I'm not sure if it's still on. There is a a law in England of inheritance that is actually written in the 1800 or not, you know, and it is against gender equality. I can't remember now if it's gone or not, but until very recently, it was still there. So be a rule breaker. Okay. I mean, I think we need to do a uh, season two of this talk. But I'm going to ask you about your new thing. And, you know, we have about like five minutes. So I'm going to ask you this question. So you had your calling, let's put it this way. Yes. And you wanted to build the legacy when you faced death, right? Yes. And now you are in a completely different domain of life, you're an entrepreneur, and you're helping organizations to up-level themselves to actually give opportunities to women to thrive and become the leaders. Yes. I'm going to ask you, what are the key things, three key things that you would want to say to organizations who want to change? I think people believe that they are inclusive, but the reality and the data says something else. And what reality and data tells us that we are still seeing institutions, organisations where the top table is still predominantly white male. We also know as a fact that we tend to be attracted to or we gravitate towards or we hire people that are in the mirror of us. And that's a fact of life, okay? Okay. However, leaders 
the new way of thinking is you can't shy away from the fact that when you leave your office and you walk on the shop floor, that you are going to be uh, met with diversity, okay? People are going to come at you from all walks of life. And I believe there is a lot of, uh, from the senior leaders that I have conversation, there's fear and there's guilt. And in some cases, there's even shame about, you know, you know, who I am and all that I bring and the way I think. And I, I'm afraid to say something just in case I get it wrong. Now, you know, the innate desire for any human being, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are in the world, we all want to be liked, respected and accepted. Okay. So what I'm saying to leaders is you need to change the mindset You need to actually dismantle some of your beliefs that you hold about the fact that people that mirror you is what constitutes success. We know that when we bring diversity, there's a lot of research, you know, when we bring diversity, we bring so much variety, you know, and that's what increases performance. So the return of investment in actually developing female talent pipelines is massive. Right. But the sad truth of it all, despite Me Too movement, despite the fact, you know, we've had Black Lives Matter, it doesn't really matter. When those things happen, things explode. And then we go back to what you've been talking about in this podcast, people reverting or converting or going back to the comfort zone. Mm. Okay. And we love consistency of predictability. We, you know, we don't like change and we don't like change to be done to us, right? So we tend to hold on for dear life. But the thing is, I always say, it's okay to be comfortable as long as it serves you. And if it's not serving you and when you look around and you think, actually, you know, I'm losing productivity, I'm actually losing performance, uh, I'm losing morale, then it means you need to do something. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Saj. I mean, we're coming towards the end. I wish we had another five hours to discuss. I I mean, you are a well of experience, wisdom, like great words. I know that you're putting a book out there, right? Yes, I am. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Definitely, I think we have another episode in you, and then I'll get in touch with you about that. But before I finish... This is the last question. You know, the name of this podcast is She's Awesome. And the reason for it is that I want my role models that I bring on this podcast, the guests that I have, to own their awesomeness and greatness. So, Saj, why are you awesome? Why am I awesome? I'm awesome because despite what life threw at me, I always overcame every single adversity. And I'm awesome that I've been derailed so many times. I've been broken. I've been pushed back, pushed down. Uh, Despite all of those stuff, I've always found some inner strength to battle through, to keep showing up. I've never not showed up. My awesomeness is really about believing that I can. And I'm also awesome, I believe, I want to use my story to inspire all the other women that are sitting there listening because I don't think my story is unique to me. 
I think if you and I met for drinks or me and every listener of yours went out and had a drink, and when we started to talk about ourselves, there are so many bits that resonate and so many overlaps and so many similarities. And I think that's what brings us all of the awesome women together. That is the best why I am awesome I've heard. And and thank you so much for this beautiful interview. It was amazing. And we will definitely have a second, maybe third one. Thank you for being here, giving us your time and energy. And I'll see you very soon, Saj. Oh, thank you so much, Jay. Lots of appreciation, lots of love, loving what you do. And thank you. Above all, thank you for creating this space, for inviting women like me to come and share their stories in the hope that we can inspire each other and and keep being awesome together. Thank you. Bye, Saj. Bye. Well, my friend, thank you for listening to this She Is Awesome podcast. If you want to share your extraordinary story and dare to inspire others, send an email to hello at academyweed.com. You can find the email address in the show notes. Well, let's meet here again next week. Take care. Bye now.